interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. What do you want to say? I hope, hope I've opened a can of worms. I said a lot during that hour. Up in the balcony. Uh, given the covenant with uh, Abraham on the circumcision, it's kind of remarkable when you get into the Joshua and the statement made they didn't circumcise Israel like twelve. Yep. You comment on that, particularly how it is they could have forgotten. Uh, They didn't forget. I just think they didn't do it. They were rebellious, frankly. Um, This is why I believe Moses writes about it in the book of Genesis. I mean, of all the things to talk about, why would you talk about Abraham and the need for circumcision and the great threat that's there, except to motivate the people he was following to be circumcised? And do you remember at Gilgal where this happens? The statement is made, why are we doing circumcision? And the response is, Gilgal, Galal, sounds like the Hebrew word Galal, which means to roll away. Gilgal sounds like the word that means roll away. And so God does this play on words and he says, because as you are circumcised, you are rolling away the iniquity of Egypt, the corruption of Egypt. They had actually still had in their possession Egyptian idols. And Joshua has to call on them to get rid of all the idols and then to be circumcised, to roll away the corruption, the defilement of Egypt so that they could become holy warriors marching into battle to take Omaha Beach. It's pretty remarkable, really, when you think about it. Of all the things to do just before you're about to fight a battle, have all your males circumcised. I know some men who have been circumcised as adults, and I'll tell you, they, weren't, they were not ready to fight a battle the next day. Okay, and it's, It debilitates your army. So why would you do that? And that's right, because the battle is the Lord's. Wait a minute, the enemy is just right down the road. If you go to Israel and you go to Gilgal, you can, if you look real hard, you can see Jericho. Today you can see it. So they're just right down the road. About five, about three miles, I think it is. About three miles. You can, you can see it off in the distance. And it's just remarkable to think that they're sitting around there circumcised as they're getting ready to fight a war. But it's God's war, not theirs. And they needed to be holy people, undefiled, not strong people. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Uh, the prophecies in the Old Testament about this final descendant of David to a more forever. It doesn't give me much indication that that would be a spiritual kingdom as opposed to more physical Israel. So, I guess you're not dispensationalists. I don't think that there will be a physical kingdom, but would you comment on that? Yeah, sure. Um, yes, it's one of the great mysteries of the Bible. When you read the prophecies in the Old Testament, it sounds like it's a physical, politico, political, geographical reality that's going to come, not some kind of spiritual thing that we talk about today. How, do you, how can you match those things up? 
And I think the first thing is, is to say, yes, that is exactly what the prophets indicate, and that is that it's a real physical kingdom that's extended worldwide throughout this world. And the second thing is to say that that is exactly why they hated Jesus. That's why they weren't willing to accept him. It's because when he came, he started talking this funny talk about mustard seeds. I mean, what do you mean? Where do you find that in the Bible, Jesus? That the kingdom of God starts in humili- with humility, with the way of the cross, with the small and the insignificant. The poor? That's not the poor. It's the mighty who will do this. And on and on it went. And so Jesus and the New Testament as a whole is really devoted to this theme. Here it is. Are you ready? The New Testament is written to explain something. And that is how the kingdom of God did come in Jesus, but that it didn't come the way everyone expected it to. That Jesus is king, but his people still suffer. Jesus is king, and his people are still persecuted. Jesus is king, and it still looks like the devil's the king. How is this possible? The New Testament explains it. It gives itself over wholeheartedly to the question, how is this possible? And then it explains how you're supposed to live in the light of that. How do you live now that the kingdom has come, but it hasn't come completely? That we're, Omaha Beach has happened, yes, but we're still marching to Berlin. We haven't reached Berlin yet. How do you live in such a condition? And that's what the whole New Testament is devoted to. But let's remember this, and that is that the final portrait of the kingdom of God is not a spiritual thing, immaterial, in your heart, the power of the Spirit within you. That's now, yes, but that's not the final picture. The final picture is that it is indeed a physical kingdom. It is the great cosmopolitan universal kingdom. The empire will strike back and it will succeed throughout the whole world. When Jesus comes back, according to Revelation 19, he's going to be coming back swinging his sword. And when he does, those that are for him and on his side will be blessed with the inheritance of the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. And those who are against him will be judged by him. And so, ultimately, what the prophets said was going to happen will happen. Okay, so from my understanding, it seems like, you know, living between you know, Jesus' two comings is sort of like, okay, so his kingdom's here, spiritually here. You know, after his second coming, he'll be here more physically. More physical, right. So before his first coming, we've talked about um, God's will happening on earth as it is in heaven. But was the kingdom here? Um, it was, but not in a, not in its, it never broke out of Israel. That's the difference. There are little bits here and there, and drop here, drop there, you know, Rahab and others, a few like that. But the, the key thing that happens in, um, the key thing that most people lose sight of in the Bible is just how horrible the exile was. The exile was so absolutely desperate that we go from the period of, from Malachi to Matthew with no revelation in Israel. That's how bad it was. I mean, it looked like everything had utterly failed. 
So yes, I mean, David did some good things and kind of expanded the borders a little bit, and so did Solomon. Solomon expanded the borders fairly well, actually. Got to the point that he had international seed trade and all kinds of things. I mean, the Queen of Sheba, the, the Arabian uh, caravanners, didn't like Solomon uh, because um, he was messing up their, their commerce. Nobody had to go through Arabia anymore. They could just hop on Solomon's boats and come right up to Ezengaber. Okay, it was great stuff. But it didn't last. It runs out of gas. And uh, even David and Solomon commit horrendous sins that run it out of gas. And so it looks like it's just sputtering, this kingdom. It's just, just barely staying alive. You know how when you turn the engine off and it... Still, sometimes will continue to putter a little bit and sputter. That's what was going on during the end, during the exile, and then, boom, he comes. As we sing it, as we sing at Christmas, "O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel." And he comes. They had been under four kingdoms: the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Medes, the Greeks, and the Romans. And Messiah comes. And so now the final stage is here. And that's the difference. The Spirit had been here before, but now He's being poured out. The remnant of Israel's gathered back in on the day of Pentecost. From all over the places they were scattered, and many of them believe the remnant's called out. And then the Apostle Paul breaks loose to the Gentiles. So much so that by the time of the end of his life in Colossians chapter 1, he says that the gospel had been preached to the whole world. He goes right to the capital of the whole world, Rome. It's amazing when you think about that. We won. 2,000 years ago we won. And we've just been winning ever since. Um, I had a question as far as... Um said the law not only shows us um, or leads us to Christ because we can't possibly fulfill it, but also is our guideline. Um, how much, I mean, I, I've, I've heard so many people say, you know, you can't go by the law today because it's so contextual um, of, of biblical times. How can we go about um, thinking about the law other than just like the Ten Commandments, I mean, because those are... Mm-hmm. Today, but the, the rest of it, and looking at stuff like that, and saying, "Okay, how can I apply this to my life? How can we go about doing that?" Um, with great patience and humility, and um, and care. How's that? How about <laughs> practically? <laughs> the the only author the only authoritative way you can do that is by reading the New Testament and interpreting the Law of Moses by the New Testament. Okay, that's that you can be fairly sure of, insofar as your interpretation of the New Testament is right. So when Paul says, is God really all that concerned about animals? He's really not concerned about animals, is he? The mule, the oxen? Nah, what he's doing here is he's teaching a principle that you should pay your pastors. Right? You should not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. So when Paul says that, you kind of go, well, that's really interesting, Paul. When I looked at that, I was talking about oxen. Um, but no, Paul says, no, it's really a principle of reciprocity. If somebody does the work, pay them. So it's not like, as you say here, that the New Testament just limits itself to the ten big ones. Um, they are distinct, but it doesn't just limit itself to that. Um, but the fact is, is that this is something that the New Testament does give us some guidance on, but it doesn't give us a lot on. And as a result of that, there is a lot of um, 
humility that has to be given to that task. Experiment, in fact. And what might be a right application at some points, points will not be a right application at other points. There's no one way to go at that because we don't have a lot of information on it. Yes? Um, I have a question. Is it incorrect to say that as a Christian, that I am a Jew and a child of Abraham? I am not direct descendant of Abraham myself, physically, but um, I know that speaking with a couple of Jewish people, I have said that. And uh, I just wanted to. They don't like that, do they? Um, actually, they do not dislike. Okay, good, wonderful. It really is a great honor that we're trying to give to them by saying this. It's not that we're saying we've replaced you. It's it's more like, thank you, <laughs> thank you for giving us a savior. Um, perhaps uh, the question is, um, is it okay for us to call ourselves as Christians, to call ourselves Jews, or to call ourselves children of Abraham, even though we're not? biologically descended, perhaps a good way to put it uh, that might be helpful would be to say we are adopted children of Abraham. That, that the family of Abraham has adopted us because we were unnatural branches. That's in Romans 11, Paul says, you have the natural branches and they're the, they're the physical descendants of Abraham and when they reject Christ, they're cut off. And then God takes these unnatural branches, these sort of wild shoots that are sort of laying around in the field, like you and me, and he picks them, sticks them in the holes here. Okay? He puts them onto the branch and grafts them in. And so we, become, we are unnatural branches, but now that we've been attached, we, have, we get our life from Father Abraham. We get our life from Father Moses and Father David and, and Father Jesus. We get our life from them. We belong to them. They have said, come on in to our tent. You're, you're welcomed as one of us. So, yes, it is absolutely and utterly okay for you as a follower and a child of uh, Jesus to say that you belong to Abraham and you've been adopted by him. With all the rights there to appertain. How do you explain that to you? Uh, I don't think they like that. Um, well, if you really want, if you want to do it in a way that would be uh, acceptable, maybe a little more acceptable, um, one of the hopes that the Bible gives in the Old Testament is that the Israelites will conquer Gentiles. Okay, Amos chapter nine is a good example of this. That they will actually, the king, the great king, will conquer the world, and so you become conquered by their king, and so you are a child because. King David has conquered your heart. You're a child of Abraham. You've been engrafted in because of their victory over you. I mean, after all, Israel had a great victory over my family. My, I come from a long line of bootleggers and thieves. How's that? And before that, they were nothing but just as pagan as a person could possibly be before Christianity came to the British Isles. Just as pagan as they could possibly be. Israel conquered my family. Took us captive. Then after a while, they made us their children. And then they, we grew up and they made us 
their brothers and sisters. That's what's happened to every one of you who's a Gentile. You think it belongs to you. It doesn't belong to you. You are the unnatural branches stuck on. Dave has one more. No, Dave says one more. Okay. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what the purpose of the regulations about clean and unclean were. Mm-hmm. Okay, what about, what are the purposes of all the clean and unclean business? Um, some of it we know, some of it we don't know the reasons, okay? And in an odd way, if I can put this real quickly, uh, in a very odd way, um, sometimes there is, a, there is a parallel between the things that Israel believed were clean and unclean and what other cultures believed to be clean and unclean. It's kind of like um, people today might think there's a right way to dress to go to church and there's a bad way to dress to go to church and the Christians kind of line up with the way other people think, that kind of stuff, okay? But on the other hand, many of the things that Moses uh, restricts Israel from doing are precisely the things that were associated with pagan religion. And so to separate the Israelites from their pagan neighbors, he gave them many of these regulations to keep them safe, to keep them separate from them, because they were so tempted to get involved and so tempted to join in. And, um, yeah, a lot of the sort of bizarre things, like don't trim the corners of your beard and things like that, that you you kind of go, what in the world is that? A lot of that is just simply to distinguish them from the people around them. And so, oddly enough, when the gospel breaks out of the barriers of Israel into the Gentile world, Peter has a vision. Eat that. I can't eat that. At Joppa, right right on the coast of Israel, as he's looking out over the sea toward the Gentile world, God says, I told you to eat that. He said, I can't eat that. That's unclean. You've told us it's unclean. He says, look now, what I declare clean is clean, and what I say is unclean is unclean. I said, eat this. Eat that lobster. It'll be good for you. That was forbidden, you know. And um, so he does. And of course, this was right at the time when God is teaching these Jewish believers that Gentiles are now accepted into. That the kingdom is finally expanded out. And, um, and so, but at the same time, uh, Paul still uses the regulations of cleanness and uncleanness to tell people to remain separate from the world, come out from among them, cleanse yourselves, wash your hands. All the sort of ritual language of the Old Testament he uses to talk about spiritual distinctions and separation from the world around us. Isn't that fun? Remember, the law of Moses is like the rules for the two-year-old. That the 22-year-old doesn't have to act like a two-year-old, but the 22-year-old must not forget the rules of the two-year-old. You've got to learn wisdom on how to follow those rules as a 22-year-old. You've been lovely a whole day at this. Yipes. Okay? And I really do appreciate you. Why don't we stand together and pray? Lord of heaven and earth, we have talked about things that are so precious and so wondrous, we cannot fathom them. We bow our heads before you now in worship and adoration because you deserve all of our worship and praise. You are the king of the universe, the one seated on the throne, ruling over all. And we are your people. How we bless you for that kingdom that you've given to us and made us a part of. And how we bless you that you have made us your image to enjoy and to see the splendor 
of that kingdom to come. Grant us all, Lord, vision to see this and to live by it. Grant us all the ability to affirm your lordship and kingship over our lives. And as you do that, as you do that, we will stop from time to time and we will give you thanks for this mercy and this kindness. Amen.